destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In verses 17 through 19, as for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. The word of the Lord. All right. Well, as we um, are in these uh, weeks leading up to Advent, we're, for these few weeks, we're thinking about the good life. Um, we're talking about what is the good life, and uh, if, you're, if you're someone who likes to take notes for a series, you know, we're looking at six keys to the good life, two keys each Sunday for three Sundays. There's a little yellow sheet in your bulletin. You can take notes if that's um, your thing. There are three ideas that I'd like you to grasp from this morning's message. One, it, we, we could call it a counterfeit path to the good life, and then two, authentic paths, just as we did last week. Um, and so we're talking, taking some time this November to think about the good life. We all um, live our lives, and many of us kind of go through the motions, and we, um, we have our responsibilities, and we have our families, and we have our things that we do. And every once in a while, it's helpful to just sort of pause and to ask ourselves, well, what is driving me? Like, what is the thing that's really driving me in life? We've been in a pandemic now for coming up on two years. Over five million people around the world have died as a result. And so the awareness of the fragility of life that comes in a time like this causes us to ask existential questions like, why am I here? What am I here for? Why, why do I do what I do with my life? Is this really the best way to spend my fleeting years? Everyone wants the good life. Nobody wants a lousy life. We want a good life. It's part of what it means to be human. But what exactly does that mean? Uh, the ancient philosophers, they thought about it a lot. Jesus talked about it. What is the good life and how do we get there? And last week, we looked at one uh, counterfeit path. So for those who weren't here last week, we looked at a counterfeit path and then two keys to the good life. The counterfeit path was the one that um, Solomon discovered uh, through his whole life, had been pursuing a life of accumulation and self-indulgence, and he gets to the end of that, and he's bored with the whole thing, and it's all meaningless, a chasing after the wind, like breathing on a mirror. It just, there's no point. And we talked about um, a, the, uh, a philosophical term called hedonism, and then we kind of talked about enlightened hedonism and how many modern Americans sort of operate from an enlightened hedonic perspective, which is that, well, I have some responsibilities with my life and my family. My ultimate goal really is to maximize pleasure and to 
minimize pain. <clears throat> and that's how a lot of Americans sort of function in their lives. And of course, Jesus corrects that um, <clears throat> as a lie, a, a counterfeit approach um, to the good life. And so what we find when we pack our lives with pleasure, we don't find the good life, we find the boring life. It's an uninteresting way to live. It's kind of like eating a dozen chocolate chip cookies in one sitting, you know, after the fourth or fifth one, it just, they stop tasting good. And both the ancient philosophers and uh, the biblical writers agree, and they both point to two keys to experiencing the good life that we talked about last week, if you weren't here. And the first one is to cultivate gratitude with a daily practice of giving thanks. And another way of thinking about that is to learn to want what you already have. We often desire what we don't have. We always want what we don't have. But can we cultivate a desire for that which we already have? And then... The second was to pursue a purpose that is bigger than yourself. Look for that which is meaningful in life. As, as uh, Solomon discovered, his approach was meaningless, right? So today we're going to follow the same pattern. We're going to look at one counterfeit path to the good life and two authentic paths. And we're doing this around the theme of, of money and how money can help us to live a good life and how it can also offer a counterfeit path as well. The assumption for, for many people, though we, we might not admit it, um, although many function as though we do, is just that if we had more money, we would have a better life, so that more money equals more happiness. Um, and of course, it's not that money or pleasure are bad, not at all. It's just that the problem comes when we start believing the cultural assumptions or the lies uh, when it comes to money about that if we have more, then we will be happier than we are now. Um, and what we come to find out is that buying the good life doesn't work. Uh, it's, it's not really possible. It's interesting that money promises the good life, and then as we start to accumulate it, um, more and we increase our lifestyles more, what also goes up with that is the stress level of, the, of what we then have to manage. And so instead of acquiring the good life, we acquire the stress-filled life, and it doesn't actually deliver on what it's promised. So I spent this um, past week, and I had a several conversations with um, Christians who have integrated, in my estimation, their life into their vocational identities as professionals in the field of finance. So some were um, financial, was a financial planner from our congregation as well as a professor in the area of finance. And so I want to share a little bit about, kind of, I kind of asked them, tell me a little bit about money and the good life and how do these things relate. And, and one person said um, that when I meet with families to talk about their budgeting and their family, their financial planning, the first thing I ask them is, what is your agenda. Um, and, and that's a great place to start because that helps people to start thinking intentionally about their money. Like, what is my goal? What am I trying to accomplish? Which is a, a starting point from um, moving away from mindless spending. Another person I spoke with suggested that when it comes to money, the good life entails at least feeling financially secure. Um, that is knowing that you have your needs met 
and that you're able to provide for yourself and for your family. Like that's really important with regard to money and the good life. To experience the good life, it's really important to have your basic needs met. And then, um, and then to have some money set aside for emergencies, she said, or to help family members if they need it. And that if you've found a way to use your time and your resources to enjoy life and to do good in the world. And that are some of the ways in which money can contribute to a good life. She said, I, I think it's important to get a plan in place first. Make sure you know how much you need to save for your goals, how much you need to cover your bills, and then determine how much you have left for discretionary spending. So I thought I'd just kind of brass tacks, very practical, thought I'd just boil this empirical research down for you. And, um, and this was some of the practical advice that I received. Meet your basic needs first. Have, and this is sort of general wisdom with finances, have money set aside for emergencies, set goals and fund them, and then determine discretionary spending last. Um, many people start with the discretionary spending first and then work their way backwards. Um, but the real question is, well, what, what are my basic needs? What constitutes our basic needs? Did you know that in 1950, in 1950, the average home that was being built was 908 square feet? Uh, and it held 3.3 um, people living in it on average, right? 3.3 people living in 908 square feet. In 2009, that's 59 years later, the average home being built was 2,700 square feet and had 2.5 occupants. And so that means that over 15, in 59 years, the average home size grew by 170%, while the average family size shrunk by 24%, which means that in, 20, or in 59 years, we've reframed and redefined what constitutes our basic needs. And my family, just to be clear, is in that latter category. I mean, we're in the 2,700 square foot range. Um, and so what I'm suggesting is that the first key for today for finding the good life is maybe reframing and reevaluating to ask myself, do I really need everything that I have? Um, is it really necessary for me to have all this in order to experience the good life or is it only increasing my stress level in my life? Full disclosure, um, Devin and I and our family, we have uh, at least a dozen unpacked boxes still in our garage from when we moved here a year and a half ago. Do we need those boxes? Do we need, so these are questions that we are asking ourselves in this season. Can we simplify? It is pretty stressful having a garage full of boxes. You're like, why do I, you know, anyway. So it increases the stress levels, stress-filled life. So uh, I wonder if you've ever played this game where, where you've ever um, taken some time to think about how, how little could I live on for a period of time? Some of you maybe have played that game before. Um, Devin and I did this thing way back um, when the kids were little and we've had to move a few times for my work. And so every time that we've had to move, we would take the 
three months leading up to our move and we would say, let's see how long we could go without having to go to the grocery store. I mean, we can't, we have all these canned goods and these things that have been in the bottom of our freezer for probably a year. Let's eat what we have and see, and just see. And we would and kind of impress ourselves by seeing, uh, you know, well, actually we can go pretty far without maybe a couple of staples here and there, but we can, um, another thing is that very early on in our marriage, um, we were living in Orange County and we were doing the, um, the morning freeway commute to work thing. Um, and we made a decision in our first year of marriage that we're not going to jump on the bandwagon um, of driving through Starbucks and getting a $4 latte on the way to work every day. Instead, what we're gonna do, because we love coffee, is we're gonna buy the big bag of Kirkland beans, we're gonna grind them ourselves, and we're gonna make coffee in the kitchen like they did in the old days with a real coffee pot. <laughs> Uh, you know, and we've stuck to that ever since, um, and we're coming on 20 years of marriage in June, and so I just kind of calculated that. If you have two adults spending $4 each, five days a week, say 48 weeks a year, that's $1,920 on coffee um, in a year. Over the course of 20 years, we've saved $38,400 on Starbucks. And, and that's, that's, you know, that's money we would rather spend according to our values. And so that's a big part of money and the good life is that we learn to, to spend money around things that we believe in, what, what, what is valuable. So here's the point. The third key in experiencing the good life is having a standard of living that's like three notches below what you can afford. This is extremely difficult for young families with kids that are growing. We have three teenagers, college is around the corner, and uh, wow, you know, this is a message that we as a family are really working on. Um, it's a challenge, but it's an important and valuable challenge to have. So number three is aim to live before, uh, below your means. Aim to live be below your means. So living three rungs down from your income means that you have margin, and margin creates peace. When you have a friend who is in need, a margin allows you to give to that person and to give generously and to be grateful that you can give because you've created some margin. Margin allows you to set up a savings account so that when your water heater or your transmission breaks down, you don't have to go and work at a valet attendant parking lot on the weekends and stress out over how you're going to pay for it. Um, margin allows you to set goals financially. It allows you to give to God and to other people. It creates peace, and it's one of the keys to the good life. And so one simple question for you and for my family is, is there any simplifying that, that needs to happen in your life um, maybe during this month of November? Is there any place where you can say, yeah, we, we probably don't need to spend money on ESPN Plus or whatever it might be. Um, or maybe it's, maybe it's not a matter of spending less, but looking at the categories of your expenditures and then going, do these really line up with my values? 
Am I spending in the way that gives me greater uh, happiness and satisfaction, or am I spending in a way that creates more stress because I'm, I'm not spending it in the right way? Um, so take some time with your families, very practical in the coming week, and, and, uh, and, and ask yourself these questions about your spending. The second way that people tend to get off track when it comes to money is that we're often tempted to think if I just had a little bit more, then I would just be a little bit more happy. Um, if I just could make this much more money, um, or if I could have this much saved in retirement, then I would have the good life. I would feel financially secure. Then I would be able to accomplish my life's goal. Uh, so much of our lives as Americans is built around money. We live in a, a capitalist economy, you know, and uh, we, even, we even attach people's values to what they, to their possessions, right, to how much money they have. We take what they make plus their assets minus their liabilities, and we say, That's your, this is your net worth. This is your net worth. Um, what a strange way to talk about money, let alone to talk about human beings. Like, this is your, you're just, you know, net worth. Anyway, Paul warns us, as we read a moment ago, he instructs Timothy to tell the people in his church this, but those who want to be rich and by the way, he doesn't notice how it doesn't say those who are rich, those who desire to be rich. And by the way, um, on a global scale, anybody who owns a car, like we're all, most, almost every one of us is rich on a global scale. But to those who want to be rich, fall into temptation and are trapped by many, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not money. Remember, you've heard the money is the root of all evil. No, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Again, having money isn't a bad thing. If you look at the Bible, lots of wealthy people. Abraham was wealthy. Uh, Isaac was wealthy. Jacob was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. One of the most wealthiest people in the New Testament was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he was um, honored and basically called a hero in all four of the Gospels uh, because he gives his tomb to Jesus to have his body buried there. He is remembered for that and affirmed. You might remember Lydia, who was in Philippi, and she was a, a, a wealthy businesswoman, a dealer of purple cloth, and she funded the starting of the Philippian church. Um, and so, <clears throat> so that's all wonderful. Um, the problem is, of course, um, how do we think about it? The question is, how do we think about it? Where does our, our heart fit in with our money, and what are we doing with it? Here's what another person, um, the, a professor who I talked with um, about the relationship between money and happiness, and I'll paraphrase sort of, she says this. Uh, she said, money, doesn't, al money alone doesn't bring happiness. It's how we use it that can either bring happiness or sadness. We have some great research on how we can spend money to bring us greater happiness. And some of the things that we've learned from that research is that we shouldn't be spending our money on extra stuff that we don't need, 
Studies show that our satisfaction starts to wane almost as soon as we bring it home, although I would argue that gear might be an exception, like a new bike or something, right? And here's why. The follow-up, she says, we should spend our money on experiences, especially experiences with our loved ones and experiences that support our values. And we should be spending our money on helping others because we actually get more satisfaction when we spend money on others than we do on ourselves. And the research shows that those who use their generosity during their lifetime rather than only when they're with their estate after they've gone um, to be with the Lord find greater happiness in this life and greater satisfaction and they actually tend to be more effective at transmitting their values to their children, which is what we want as parents, don't we? Um, and so it's something they do along the way. When we, when we get to the end of the passage, Paul um, is telling us that this is essentially the relationship between money and the good life, and this is what he says. As for those who in the present age are rich, again, that might be all of us, Command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Anyone who's went through the 2008 recession knows about the uncertainty of riches. But rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. I love that line, that they may take hold of the life that really is life. It, it implies that there is a kind of life that really isn't life. You can be alive, but not really living. And so... Paul doesn't want us to have a stress-filled life or a boring life, a life of conspicuous consumption. Uh, but he says there really is a life that really is life, and it has something to do with trusting God, with generosity and a willingness to share. This is what Jesus said in, in Acts chapter 20, 35. The only words of Jesus quoted outside the Gospels, and Luke has Paul quoting him to say these famous words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And any parent uh, who has had a Christmas morning with their children knows exactly uh, the truth of this, that it is so much more joyful to see someone open a gift that you gave them than to open the gift yourself. So this is the second um, key for today, or the fourth in our series, uh, for experiencing the good life. Find joy through personal generosity. We all know how joyful it is to experience somebody opening a gift you've given them. So a question for us is, are there places where we can simplify and scale back in our lives in order that we can be more generous this year, this coming year? I know there are in my life. And that's a question that Devin and I are having and with our kids. Um, I wonder if you might start making a plan to do that as well. And by having margin, you create, um, does, that, does the margin allow you to uh, give to a neighbor in need or a friend or a relative when they're uh, in need? 
and of, or a cause that you believe in. And of course, that ties into what you give when it comes to your church family as well. And that leads me to the last point um, that I want to make, and that is that just to remind you of the commitment cards that you received in the mail for those of you who call this your church home. This is sort of um, a family room conversation. Uh, and uh, it, I don't want you to fill it out today. I would want you to go home and to think about it, to look at your budget, to talk with your spouse, to, if, you, if your spouse is with you, to talk with your children, um, to pray about it, include them in the conversation, and, uh, and, and prayerfully consider um, how much you give to, to the church, even if it's just a little bit. So as you think about these commitments, I'd like to ask you to just pray, God, help me to honor you with my giving. And, you know, pastors, we, we struggle with having to give these messages every year, you know. Um, it's not uncommon that once a year we give um, a stewardship message. Um, Jesus talked about money a whole lot more than most preachers do. But we don't, we do, we struggle with it not because we don't believe in, in it. We totally do. We absolutely do. We just don't want people to misunderstand that the church is just interested in your money. No, this is, this is really about trusting the Lord with our lives, taking steps of faith and growing in Christ, and supporting the ministry of the church, which is absolutely needed. So um, I, um, won't, I don't expect people in, this, in any of the churches that I've served to give 10%. Um, I expect that some will be called to give 10%, some will be called to give much more than 10%, and some will be called to give significantly less than 10%. I think what I'm hoping is that each of us would say, I want to take a greater step of faith this year in my generosity, um, whether to the church or elsewhere. Um, can I give 1% more of my income away next year than I did last year and grow um, in my faith and in trust and in that way as well? And so I just encourage you to take a step in that direction and see what happens. See how the Lord blesses you and in your faith and in your life. So to summarize, we experience the good life when we simplify our lives in order to live below our means. And we experience the good life when we become generous and willing to share and thus take hold of the life that really is life. And that's my hope and prayer for you and for me today. So as we close in prayer, I'd, I'd like to invite you to take out your wallet or billfold or checkbook or your purse or if you're like me and you have your cards on your phone, um, just to, to hold it. I'm not asking you to give anything today, um, but just to hold it, to touch it as we pray. And I'd like to ask you to whisper uh, this prayer under your breath as we pray together. Thank you, God, for everything. I realize that all of life is a gift. Help me to honor you in my offerings. Help me to trust you with my life. Help me to serve you above everything else. Guide me as I fill out my commitment card this week. And I pray that my offering and pledge would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.